From the hills of central New York and in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. Kansas State professor Dale Bremer was a ranch hand, a pizza delivery guy, a meteorology major in college. Lifelong Midwesterner, you can tell, and currently a professor at Kansas State University. I had a chance to chat with Dale recently about his research, his interest in turf, remote sensing, water use, and his blog titled Finding Meaning in the University, a faith-driven website where Dale expresses his views on a variety of society's most difficult topics. Hi, Dale. Welcome to Frankly Speaking. Thanks for taking the time to join me. I'm looking forward to a conversation as lively as the one we just had off the air. So what's it like out in Kansas these days? Let's start with the weather. I I know you're a lifelong meteorologist. How's the growing season been out in Kansas so far? Well, hi, Frank. It's good to be here. It has been hot for a while here, unseasonably hot preceded by unseasonably cool. So it's kind of been, we didn't have much of a spring here, it seems like. So we had uh, kind of a blizzard almost in in mid-April, and now it's just been hot, so turning kind of dry. So it's interesting. I start with the weather because of that degree you have uh, and your interest in meteorology. Where did that start? You, You know, you grew up in Nebraska, I think aerial applicator, ranch hand, combine crew, pizza delivery. Where did the interest in meteorology come about? Well, I grew up on a farm, and my father, he talked about the weather all the time, which probably (laughs) is not surprising. So he he, he just talked about it all the time. The old timers would say this about the weather and that. And so I was just always paying attention to the weather and learning about the weather from him. And so I just learned from that to, to be fascinated by the weather and the clouds and just always paying attention to it. And so then how did the transition occur into plants then, right? You have this sort of, on the one end, sort of very data-oriented physics, uh, chemistry, and then, of course, plants, uh, maybe hardcore biology. How did you decide to sort of bridge that gap between the two? Well, when I went to college, I, I... actually did look at meteorology, but it was it was way more physics than what I really wanted. And I mean, it was amazing to me how the, just how much math was involved. So I started looking at different options. And when I was an undergraduate, I, I majored in agronomy. And then when I went into graduate school, I found this, this area called um, micrometeorology, which is basically kind of the where meteorology meets crop production. And so that's, you know, to, to put it in simpler terms, it just basically means that that's surface layer mm-hmm. where, you know, the weather's impacting the crops. And of course, when we're talking about turf, that mm-hmm. would be the turf, you know, mm-hmm. how, how is, how is weather impacting turf? That can be temperature, humidity, wind, um, and radiation, all that. Right. So, and then of course, yep. So, 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 you know, you have this interest in the weather, but as I'm looking at your your development through agronomy, there was that 10-year stint between bachelor's and master's. Is that when you were delivering pizzas in the wildlife uh, refuge? I uh, wasn't delivering pizzas then. That was when I was in, in, as an undergraduate. But yeah, that's when I was up. I went up to work on a ranch in Montana, and I was. that's when I was the aerial pilot applicator. Uh, applying pesticides to crops for 
couple years and working on the wildlife refuge and yeah, just, I wanted to go out and do a lot of things. And that, that cost me, you're right, about 10 years. My yeah. colleagues, they always joke about that. that <laughs> I was out get, getting all this fun experience. That's and, right. Well, listen, I want to I wanna sort of see, make a transition from the idea of studying the weather and meteorology and, you know, start our conversation literally as far out as we can in, into the world of the atmosphere and, and greenhouse gases. And I want to bridge these two things by saying how much I've appreciated scientists like you who, you know, are not indoctrinated into turf. I mean, look at Jack Fry. He's been a turf guy his entire life. I mean, I've That's been right. a turf guy my entire life. And I really feel like that sort of incestual approach we have in C5, our research division of just being turf people, turf people, turf people, sometimes limits, I think, the way we study it. Now, because I'm at Cornell and I work at an Ivy League institution, I, be, I meet very little people who do what I do, even in the College of Ag. We, we have a good big program, but not in the fields I'm in. So I've really always valued that when scientists like you come in from a non-turf background and apply though that thinking um, to the turf world, just talk for a second what that's like when when you first started doing it. Of course, you got Mr. Nice Guy out there and Jack Fry, so he wouldn't have sure. been a pain in the butt like I would have been if I was working out there. But <laughs> eventually, you must have looked at him and said, hey, I can work on this stuff. Yeah, well, you're exactly right. I, I came into it with with no background in turf grass other than mowing my lawn and I am um, it was actually when I first came into it it was pretty I was intimidated but that says more about me than it does about C5 as I know <laughs> now because I, I feel like just I've gotten to know C5 over the over the oh, years yeah. since then and, it's and been the more, you, and the more you get to know us the more you realize what a bunch of knuckleheads we are <laughs> <laughs> great knuckleheads that's though, right like Love me them. you know so and Fidanza. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But he's been fun too. So, um, so yeah, I've, it's just been fun really. And it's really been the same with the turf industry in Kansas. I know the, like one of the very first things I had to do was talk, go to talk at a field day to the turf industry in Kansas. And I was so intimidated, like, well, I don't know anything about turf, but they were so accepting and they have been over the years. They've just really been supportive and they seem to appreciate what I bring to the table and, and of course, I appreciate what what they bring to the table. Be, their support has been tremendous. That's so right. it's really been a good experience overall. But yeah, yeah. you're right. At the very beginning, I was I was <laughs> intimidated. Well, and so if if we look at at least, I'd have to say, I started to notice your work, and and wasn't until that we were getting close to doing this that I was doing more study. That you know, when you first started putting out your work looking at greenhouse gases, in particular nitrous oxide emissions, right? This is the nitrogen that goes off into the atmosphere when you make a fertilizer application. You know, because of my interest and my sort of scientific philosophy around environmental stewardship and how we should be basing our decisions first and foremost on, you know, preserving and protecting the environment. And we should have a, a defensible amount of inputs we can argue, you know, we're using to get the function of the landscape without compromising the environment. I, I've spent an entire career trying to do that. And you came along and started to study this nitrous oxide thing. And that's why I bring up the fact that you weren't turf. I'm thinking the only 
other guy I know who studied this kind of thing was Dan Bowman, and he wears a Hawaii shirt every day. So, you know, obviously that diversity we have in our industry is important. Talk about a little bit why you decided to focus on this particular aspect, because nobody else was, or did you think and still think it's vital and we should be paying a lot of attention to it? Well, my background, of course, in micrometeorology, I worked in the tall grass prairie when I was and part of what I did was actually studying what we call trace gas emissions from the surface. And, and that's just a, I mean, fancy way of saying photosynthesis, for example, is the plant absorbing CO2 from the atmosphere, right? Um, nitrous oxide coming out of the soil into the atmosphere is, is um, emissions of, mm-hmm. of greenhouse gases is what we're talking right. about. So because I had that that training and that experience and because of the the concern about um, climate change and and global warming I was able to get some funding to kind of kind of the the, I guess you'd say where some of my skills met the funding and was able to start working on this this um, measuring the actual emissions of of nitrous oxide from the surface, which, like you said, is related to primarily to nitrogen fertilization. Right. So, so, so just now, you know, now we've got the golf course superintendents. They, we lost them for a little while when we were talking about yep. turf research, but I think yep. we got them back now because we're talking about nitrogen fertilization. Right. And it's a part of fertilization that you would have to say, honestly, it's not something we've considered except maybe Horgan's work when he started doing that mass balance stuff with Branham. Um, right? right, and your work. This has been a late comer. We've been studying leaching and runoff, but the loss of nitrogen through these sources has not been well studied. Do you? Obviously, there's much more work to do. So let's start with this. How how concerned should the turf grass industry be about this particular loss of nitrogen uh, to the greenhouse contributing to greenhouse gases? Uh, how concerned should we be about it? Um, you know, on a scale of one to ten, ten means it's well, we're going to shut us down, and one means I don't need to worry about it at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, <clears throat> that's a good question, and and just, I guess I can start out by saying that the actual amount of fertilizer that's lost to nitrous oxide emissions is fairly small overall. It's probably maybe it varies a little one to to two or three percent, maybe a little more or less, give or take. So the, the actual amount isn't that great. The big, I guess the big um, implications of nitrous oxide is, is because it's a greenhouse gas and because it can trap and hold heat actually much more than CO2, mm-hmm. a CO, uh, nitrous oxide molecule will hold about 300 times more heat than a CO2 Molecule, although there is a lot less of it in the atmosphere, but therefore any any nitrous oxide that we put into the atmosphere um, can contribute to what's being implicated in climate change. Right. You know, just the increase in, in um, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that's put there by man. Right. And also, there's there's evidence that nitrous oxide also um, destroys ozone yeah. in the atmosphere. Yeah. So. So that's the main reason that we want to get a handle on how much nitrous oxide we're putting into the atmosphere. And also, 
you know, we've been looking at how can we manage turf grass to try and mitigate that. Right, and that's where I want to go next, right? You just published this work uh, just this past May. Uh, yep. in crop science uh, with yep. Ross Braun. Um, mm-hmm. It looks like the culmination of what I think you've been poking around at the edges for a while about sort of what are the clear management things. You looked at sort of how turf is emitting the nitrous oxide and then how you can manage it with irrigation and end fertilization. And, you know, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of time to cover this, but it looked like in simple terms, you know, going away from urea, using uh, maybe polymer coated in this particular thing, and using uh, irrigation. Um, so, so th- how do those factors play together? Yeah, that's exactly right. We um, we basically compared nitrous oxide emissions from urea treated turf grass and poly- polymer coated urea. And then also we had some unfertilized plots. And then we had two different irrigation levels. So, I mean, basically the bottom line that we found is if you use polymer-coated urea, it actually has significantly less. About It reduces the, the nitrous oxide emissions by about 20% mm-hmm. compared to urea. Right. And it just prevents... Well, I probably, like you said, we don't have time to get into all the geek, the, the geek <laughs> science stuff. geeky stuff. Go ahead. But Give it a yeah, shot. And, yeah. And then, well, basically, with urea, when you irrigate it, you have these tremendous spikes where nitrous oxide, right. the, the biggest increase in, in emissions when you use a urea compared to polycoated is probably within the first three or four days after you fertilize and irrigate because you always water it in. Right. And so... It can it can jump fifteen percent. Well, and the interesting thing, yeah, I mean, and and I think there's a lot of ways to go. I mean, if we were having a real hardcore scientific discussion at the CF my meetings in front of a poster, uh, it would be a more in depth discussion. But the thing I found fascinating about reviewing this paper was that even your unfertilized control maintained acceptable visual turf quality. So I'm going to put you on a spot, pal. I'm sure Jack told you I was going to do that. Yeah, he did. Do do you think, do you think we can significantly reduce the amount of nitrogen we're using? Because theoretically, I don't have to worry about this, Dale, if I cut back on how much I use, whether I use urea or polymer coated. Does your data at all begin to make you wonder, are we over-fertilizing some of our amenity turf? We're not talking about putting green turf. We're right. talking about lawn turf or fairway turf in this case. So right. where are you at with just fertilizing, reducing fertilizer as a way of reducing this problem? Yeah. Well, I, this, this particular study was on zoysia grass, which is a very low input grass. So that's probably part of the reason we could not fertilize it and still have acceptable vis- visual quality, although I will say we were still pretty amazed by that. And I, you know, to answer your question directly, I, I do suspect we could get by with less nitrogen fertilization than, than we are currently doing so, in our lawn. So, and, okay, so there you go. So now I want to sort of set us up for after break, right? When we come back from break, Dale, you did the perfect job of making the segue because 
the next batch of work that you did I want to talk about that I'm sure golf course superintendents are going to want to hear about is how behavior changes when you put irrigation in the ground, right? And how we uh, look at changing behaviors and how we behave to put nitrogen on. Before we go to break, do you think we fertilize mostly based on color and how it looks and maybe that's not the best way to do it? Um, well, that's, that's a good question. I mean, I think probably that's largely true. People want to have green lawns, Mm -hmm. uh, and so they're going to put as much nitrogen and fertilizer on as they think it takes to do that. That's, that's perhaps maybe I'm making too broad of a, of a brush there, Mm -hmm. but I think in general, that's probably true. Yeah. Okay. Professor Dale Bremer of Turfgrass Science, graduate program director at Kansas State University in in Manhattan, Kansas. The other Manhattan, huh, Dale? Yeah, that's right. The Little Apple. The Little Apple. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking on the TurfNet Radio Network. We'll be right back. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear in traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here in the hills of central New York, next to Cornell University, talking to my colleague, Professor Dale Bremer from Kansas State University out in Manhattan, Kansas, the Little Apple, as we were just told. And I tell you, Dale, I liked how you were ending up there a minute ago when we were talking about, you know, the reasons, the sort of sociological reasons or perceptions of why we do certain things relative to fertilizer. Uh, You've also spent a little bit of time recently publishing about um, residential homeowners and their behavior, uh, particularly with regard to lawn watering. So can you set the stage for why you decided to study this? Because you then did a really nice sort of survey of their perceptions and then looked at their behavior uh, from how they watered their lawn. And and I think it's really fascinating because it also uh, gives a little bit of an indication maybe of how golf course superintendents are impacted by these same homeowners. So can you put into context these two uh, studies that you did and sure. what this was all about? And like I said earlier, you know, what's a meteorologist doing this kind of work? <laughs> sure. I mean, sometimes the, the path of a scientist isn't always straight. That's so right. it was about 10 years ago, we got a, uh, actually a federal grant from the USDA to look at water use in lawns. And part of that, of course, was a micro, did have a micrometeorological aspect where we were trying to measure ET. the ET, or I'm sorry, lawn water use, evapotranspiration in um, lawns. And but, it, but one thing that we were told and instructed is, okay, if you ever want to get USDA money, then the way the culture was at that time, and actually probably still is, is you need to 
have some kind of a sociological aspect to it where you're looking at human behavior. That's just the way the USDA was, that's, they realize and understand that that's a big part of it. And so, we would know, agree, right? I mean, wouldn't yeah, we, we would. agree? Yep, absolutely. I mean, it's, we have to understand human behavior. We have to understand what's behind it, what, what the drivers are, if we're ever going to hope to try and um, bring about any kind of change. For example, you know, if, if people are watering too much because they want to have that perfect green lawn and it's okay, we know it's okay to water a little less, but it's, and it's actually okay to have a little bit of brown in your lawn too, but people, they don't want to accept that. So how do you go about bringing that change? And so that's what we were attempting to look at when we, we sent out this survey. We, when I thought what was fascinating when I was reviewing it is, you know, here's these guys in the middle of Kansas doing work on urbanization. You know, it'd be <laughs> like me doing work on the prairie from, from central sure. New York. So I really like how you addressed it. And in fact, Dale, I'll tell you, I'm starting to refer to myself as an urban grassland specialist mm-hmm. because I think when we look at Malesi's work, it's clear grass is an urban crop. This is, yep. yeah, of course, people have grass in the countryside, but it isn't where the demand for the inputs are. And I have to say, and I'd like your opinion on this, when you did the survey, one of the things we're really harping, harping on here in the Northeast with our landscapers is get the fertilizers and pesticides and grass clippings and organic waste off the pavement. Stop pushing it to the pavement. You did make a mention that a small percentage of homeowners did that regularly. It was a small percent, or did you did you find most of them knowingly kept it off, or did it just happen by accident? Well, actually, it we found it was a small percent, but when you ran the numbers on it, it was several thousand households. And for for example, um, one of the we looked at Wichita and Olathe and Salina, Kansas. And when you have a city as big as Olathe and as Wichita, when you when you run the numbers, it's yeah several thousand households that were actually basically sweeping fertilizer into the storm drains, which basically is a direct pipe to the rivers. That's exactly right. So even though it's a small percentage, it still could be a significant problem. And and we found some interesting things in terms of who was doing this. For example, the it did turned out that the, the people who had the in-ground automated sprinklers systems, they even though they tended to water a lot more, probably more than they needed to, they also seemed to be more knowledgeable about lawn care, and they, they tended to sweep sweep it back, the fertilizer back onto the lawn and the clippings back onto the lawns, whereas it, it seemed to be the other the um, homeowners in the um, maybe lesser expensive houses who didn't have the in-ground sprinklers who tended to sweep it down the drain more. Did you get any sense? I mean, I know you did residential homeowners and, you know, asked them, you know, how they did it. Did you ever uh, get any sense what the landscape professionals were thinking about this and any sense of, of, you know, how they're, you know, what they're thinking about this, because one of the things I thought was fascinating is when you do it, when you added the, the sort of, um, the income based approaches, right. Um, you know, uh, how much a person made or how much, uh, how, how much their house was worth, you know, the more affluent places, uh, cared more, uh, spent more, uh, had a higher level of, uh, expectations, 
Um, and, and in New York, uh, they'd hire somebody. <laughs> in Kansas, mm-hmm. I guess they do it sure. themselves. So did you have anything right. to add about the commercial side of this? We really did not address that in our survey. And that's something that if we had it to do again, or if we ever did more, it would be good to try and discern that. Because I, I mean, I think probably across the board, I would guess that probably most lawn care companies do sweep it back or blow it back onto the lawns, but there probably are exceptions to that. And I, But as far as the percentages or the amounts, I don't know. And yeah, you bring up a good point. I mean, these, the, for example, the, the homeowners that had the in-ground sprinklers, they say they, you know, they blew the clippings back onto the lawn. Well, we don't know for sure if they did it or if, or if they just saw know that they're the people that they hire to do it did it so we didn't have any way of really really discerning that so at the end of the day uh when it comes to you know and i and i like to think of these corollaries with golf right i mean to a certain extent you know people uh want green grass um Mm -hmm. they're not as mindful about the potential impacts that um you know, some of the things they do could be when they make mistakes, uh, particularly if you talk to extension people, they'll tell you they often mow too low and water improperly. So, you know, one of the things that we talked about off air, and I want to challenge you on a little bit in this area, and I know it, it applies to golf superintendents as well, is knowing what you know now about the way homeowners behave if you could get professionals to come in and automate irrigation and automate mowing in some way uh do you think that would in the long term help us with some of these issues if they knew if people knew the lawn was tended to for its function at least so that it looks halfway decent but they really didn't have to do much to it right I, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because we are doing some research and have done before, but we're getting into more research using soil moisture sensors. And I've always believed that using soil moisture sensors really is probably one of the best ways of controlling irrigation because you have a a sensor in the ground that's actually measuring the amount of water that's in the ground that's available to that turf grass. Right. And so, you know, when that soil dries out and the turf actually does need water, you're going to know it. And so I, I am a big believer in the, in the future of using soil moisture sensors to control irrigation. And, the, and that really means for lawns and I think, I think already some of that's happening on golf courses and in lawns. Yeah, I, I find... Think because I, of te- it, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think because technology is improving... Yeah that that's only going to get better. You know, there are some limitations to that, obviously, but I really think technology is helping address some of those limitations. So, so when we talk about technology, one of the things that frustrates me in our industry and golf superintendents can be sort of turned off now if, if, if they're mad about me saying that, but I feel like in many ways, there's lots of resistance. They feel like, oh, well, too much technology and, you know, you still got to be a good superintendent and all this data driven stuff, Frank, you know, it's not going to replace the superintendent. And I keep saying, Hey, we're not talking about replacing you. We're talking about giving you more information to make a decision. 
Do you right. feel in general, and again, in your transition to this business, I mean, meteorology, gosh, Dale, if it's anything, it's about <laughs> data. How did you uh-huh. feel when you came into a world where perceptions and, oh, I don't want this, and, oh, I like doing it this way. H- h- do you think that's going to be an obstacle to us making big advances? Because uh, I wouldn't say technologies really impacting in the way it could they're using the hand meters but many of them are skeptical about those in-ground sensors still and in fact are unlikely to give up control of it to the in-ground sensors where i think they're more likely to have a better surface and use less water if they give it to the sensor give me your comments well i am I tend to agree with you. I think that, you know, one, one thing that may have to happen, and it's already happening in a lot of places in the country, is the availability of water. As that becomes less and less, then they may, it seems like when you're talking about behavior change, a lot of times it takes some kind of an external force like that to really make it happen. And I wish, I agree with you, I think technology is underutilized in, in management, and I think soil moisture sensors have, have really come a long ways and I and wish they were more utilized, um, including in golf courses. But, um, you know, it's something that I you're exactly right. They are a tool that a superintendent can use to help them know what's going on out there in the course, and therefore it becomes a tool that helps them as they're trying to manage the water on their course. And when it really gets down to, okay, our water supply is getting restricted and we may even have times when we, when we can irrigate or we just have very minimal water, then you want to know where you should put it and how, and the least amount that you can get by with. Right. So, you know, I grew up in this business when everything was quick couplers. They really do had in ground systems, but yep. they were in ground impact heads. Not everybody had them. You had to drag a hose and move it a couple of times on the putting yep. green. It was hard right. to water. And so you were uh, likely to, you didn't overwater very much. Some, most of the right. time we, we were not overwatered because, you know, you, it was such a pain in the butt to do it. You did this in-ground work with homeowners, and you found that when they had in-ground systems, it made it easy, and so they did it more. What right. do you think? How do we change that behavior with golf superintendents if we don't use soil moisture? That seems to me to be the thing to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, my, first of all, my my experience is that general, generally the um, superintendents are probably better overall at irrigating than than most residential homeowners, you know, just because it's let's their hope. business. Let's hope. Yeah, let's hope. Yeah, let's hope. I, it's, I'm sure it's not across the board. <laughs> I was, I did think of what I was going to say. Okay, go uh, ahead. Earlier, you, yeah, you were just talking about, you're talking about in-ground sprinklers versus handheld, and I totally agree with you. I think, you know, these, these in-ground soil moisture sensors is the ticket for really long-term management of soil moisture. And so I think that if if a superintendent is irrigating by feel then <clears throat> you don't you just don't know for sure what's going on down in that soil and that even gets back to ET you're right i most of my background is is in estimating evapotranspiration and using that to irrigate the lawn and i know a lot of superintendents use that and the models have gotten a lot better ET models but they're still models you know they're still just predicting what what we think is happening in terms of the amount of mm-hmm. water that that turf mm-hmm. is using 
in the amount of water that's being drawn out by the atmosphere, evaporation. And, um, but the thing about a soil moisture sensor is it's down in the ground and it's telling you what's actually going on there. Over so time. it just makes sense to me. Yeah, over time. So if we can develop these thresholds where, okay, you're getting dry and, re- and our research tells us that if you go beyond this very far that it's going to start, your turf is going to start wilting and turning brown, then it's time to irrigate. Yeah. But, you know, even if you can just bypass um, just a few irrigation cycles by waiting just a little yeah. bit longer right. than you normally would, and you get some rainfall and you can stretch it out, then, you you know, we, we found that you can have 30 to 70% savings in irrigation water right. by using these soil moisture sensors. So, That's yeah, right. I think... Um, you know, in terms of superintendents, I, I would like to see them start using that. And we are, we're working on some research right now to hopefully with, to try and um, shed some more light on that. That's right. And, and speaking of shedding light, I'm not going to let you leave before we take our next break without talking a little bit more about uh, data and the use of it and, and the, the role that eventually spectral imaging may play to turf. You know, we're talking about ET, we're talking right. about soil moisture. Um, the, the idea of NDVI, the satellite images, we're starting to see this make its way into turf. Uh, where do you see uh, spectral imaging or the use of regular drone flying? Is it just another piece of data, or do you think it's a bit of a game changer? Um, well, at, at this point, it's, it is hard to tell. I've been working with drones for several years now, and my experience is the data is there, – there's promise there. Hmm. And I – I really believe that there's going to be a niche for that um, in terms of a game changer. Um, I'm less convinced of that now than I was when they first came out for various reasons. I mean, flying a drone is is um, something you most people would probably have to hire someone to fly mm-hmm. the drone and then interpret the data and give you feedback in that way. Right. And there's a lot of information you get from this spectral sensing and it requires ground truthing. And so if you, if you have someone who understands how to interpret the data, collect, first of all, collect the data, then interpret the data, and then someone to go out and ground truth it, then that's where the power is, I think. Yeah. And that's where they're going now. I mean, Bill Kreiser's doing it at Nebraska with the turf view people. Um, every, a lot of people are working with green site technologies now, uh, Toro signed them on. So they're doing regular drone flyings. You're right. Uh, you're going to contract with somebody to do this. This is going to be a, a sort of a crop consultant niche that right. really has never been filled in the turf grass industry very effectively, you know, beyond right. some of the USGA agronomists and things like that. So I think the technology component here is going to be important, but the ground truing and other things is where the research is still needed. And I'm glad to see you doing it. So yeah. um, how long do you think, how far out you think we are until this becomes commonplace uh, in turf and I guess I'd ask you that before we go to break relative to how it's been adopted in agriculture. Oh, boy. Well, that's a need my crystal ball for that, which I'm not too good at. So um, I know that I think from what I understand in agriculture, it's also 
a niche. It has a niche role. I mean, you know, when you're talking about agriculture, you have all these big acreages and you have, they're spread out over many miles. And I spoke to one agronomist who, who started in drones and he ended up being more convinced that, that um, just flying a Cessna over thousands of acres was, was better for their particular business. And they ended up kind of getting out of the drone business. Hmm. But um, there are, there are, people who use drones and I've seen the data and it is very, very fascinating. And I think there's, I I do think, I guess kind of probably I'm going back to what I said earlier, but I I do think that there will be a role for them to play. But one of the challenges you'll have with golf courses and consultants is, you know, you got these golf courses that are spread out over many miles. And so they'll have to consider things like, okay, are we going to drive? If we're going to take weekly measurements, are we going to drive to all these courses weekly and fly it? And then you've got weather considerations. Or are you going to just leave a drone at every course and have them fly when they can and then interpret the data? And, you know, I, you, you probably know more about the the state of the, the actual industry in drones maybe than I do. Yeah, I just figured maybe you had, a, again, additional insight in the technology. But we're going to leave it at that. Dale Bremer, professor of turfgrass science at Kansas State University out in the other Manhattan, Manhattan, Kansas. I'm Frank Rossi in the place of the other Manhattan uh, in New York State in the hills of central New York at Cornell University. You're listening to Frankly Speaking on the TurfNet Radio Network We'll be right back. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you. There and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here. We are winding down our conversation with Professor Dale Bremer at Kansas State University. And I have to tell you, Dale, what a joy to finally have this conversation. You and I have been trying to connect to do this uh, for a while. And I learned from our good friend Jack Fry there was a little bit of avoidance mechanism in there. Um, and, I, and I wonder if uh, uh, some of it was how much I wanted to talk about this other part of your professional life that you find uh, not often discussed. And when I was reading the papers uh, that you were doing, I went to your faculty page, and at the bottom of it is a, you know, your website, and it's called Finding Meaning and Purpose in the University. That's, as we talked about off air, it's been a little dormant for a while because of uh, things going on in your life and the energy required to do it. But what I find fascinating is it, it is not something you see very often among faculty colleagues. Uh, um, I would say writing uh, in this way about these topics uh, with uh, almost scientific uh, methodology about how you articulate your opinions on these 
matters related to faith. Um, it's, you know, great are the works of the Lord and they are studied by all who delight in them, a psalm. So, you know, this may have, you know, for the two people that might still be listening, Dale, <laughs> after we've had all this conversation, you know, I find this among the more fascinating things of the many fascinating things that you do. Talk for a second about how you came about doing it and, and sort of why you ultimately decided to do it, even after you knew, you sort of wanted to do it. Sure. Well, probably the biggest factor was just my own experience as a college student many years ago. I was, um, you know, grew up in the in the as a Christian and went to the university and was, of course, immediately challenged with the just secularism and the, the atheism, mm-hmm. naturalism that I found there. And you know that's 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 okay to be challenged with it, but it really just caused me to i guess struggle a lot and i you know I just thought, well, maybe if you're educated, you don't have a faith, maybe you just have to be an atheist or just not believe in God, maybe that is silly mm-hmm. and um so anyway, and fast forward a few years, and i've I really enjoy reading apologetics books by people like William Lane Craig mm-hmm. and um, John Lennox and, and Lee Strobel. And there's just a lot of powerful evidence for believing in the, in the Christian faith, which is what, you know, that's what my belief is. Right. So t- t- re- t- talk for a minute, because you introduced a good word that I'm sure many people are not going to be familiar with, because it maybe has a different meaning than the way it's used. What's a Christian apologetic? Okay, that, yeah, that's a good point. So apologetics is really just um, um, giving a defense for what we believe, mm-hmm. and in, in my case, it would be for Christianity, because mm-hmm. you hear a lot of, of um, talk that, well, it's not something that you can believe, science has disproved God, mm-hmm. and, you know, um, did, did Jesus really rise from the dead? There's no, I mean, that seems crazy. Mm-hmm. And so there really is a lot of evidence that supports that when you really go into it. I, I do, I'm a pretty deep thinker, mm-hmm. and so I do spend time thinking about life and death, and mm-hmm. of course, we've all lost people we love, sure. and to me, to not think about where where did they go, and where am I going to go after mm-hmm. I die? I mean, those are really, to, to ignore that is just astounding to me, and not that, not that people do, but I just, I kind of want to know as much as I can know about it, and so my faith definitely answers a lot of those questions but as a scientist I don't I don't want to just believe something just because my parents did right. you know I want to make it my own and I, I if, if it's not true I don't want to believe it so I I dig into it and I start saying okay well what about this challenge about believing in God is it is it crazy what about the fine tuning of the universe what about the resurrection of Jesus from the mm-hmm, dead that mm-hmm, it really mm-hmm, happened, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. what, what evidence is there? So. Right. So, so, so you're essentially as a scientist, uh, using your inquiry and curiosity and methodology in giving yourself, uh, in your mind, rationalizing that these things are provable facts, not, not merely faith, but things that, that can be known. Right. As, yeah, exactly. As as much as they can be proved, you know, right. I mean, you can't, it's, it's like they say, you can't prove God exists, but you can't prove that he doesn't exist either. And so we look at the evidence that we have and, and draw our conclusions and really it gets down to worldview, you know, right. am I, can I believe this or not? 
Well, and and then and then can there be multiple beliefs of these things, right? Having studied, right. you know, the Roman Catholic religion myself, we were taught it was the only perfect faith that all others sort of aspired to to be like this. There was this exclusionary uh, idea to it. I remember, you know, when when Catholicism and, and Roman Catholicism started to come, Christianity started to come, you had to denounce other faiths to sort of move into it. And this was, I have some sense of it. What I'm more fascinated about than just the whole end of it is, you know, we laughed before we came on the air about how likely different our faculties are in the College of Ag in Kansas versus uh, New York. I, I don't view that as a problem because as you said aptly that I've on the left that I'm more liberal I would be viewed in the majority you might be viewed in the minority can you talk for a second about what it's like to to sort of feel like a part of yourself that's uh important has to be I don't want to say hidden but not something you advocate for regularly yeah sure well I mean there are a couple couple areas that that really are related to that. I mean, we're talking about my faith as a Christian and um, just <clears throat> really trying to be discerning about how to talk about that or when to talk about that. And, and the secular environment tends to to kind of stifle that. So um, another area that I didn't really talk about is we, we were talking about greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. Mm-hmm. And and I'm definitely not one that buys into the narrative, the 95% consensus, even though I'd probably be considered in that. I'm not, you know, I'm just not comfortable with all the, I think a lot of the climate change talk and global warming talk mm. is politically driven, personally. Yes. So I'm But there is some that, science there, right? I mean, you'd, there you'd agree there's there, plenty absolutely. of science. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I tend to come down on the side of what you started out talking about, just environmental stewardism. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a matter of being a good environmental steward and taking care of the environment, which I'm totally on board with that. Um, it's just some of the, some of the, uh, I feel like a politics drives, drives the science sometimes and it, and it should be the other way around. Well, listen, but. Dale, I mean, it, it, I, I think, uh, you and I are in a transition as land grant scientists to what the land grant in the land grant mission is going to be for the next 50 years. I mean, we are experiencing dramatic changes in funding and direction and, you know, scopes of colleges of agriculture, uh, maybe not so much in Kansas. That's much more agrarian based. While we certainly have a large agriculture in New York state and a need for an agricultural university, there's still, you know, are places where now we're going to have to be more public scientists. And, and I, I really admire the fact that you've taken the time to do this. And, and I have to say, it's interesting that the post that's up there from February of 17 is what really wanted me to have you on. You went and took on the the, the absolute third rail of abortion, and mm-hmm. I gotta believe. Uh, do you mean no one ever talks to you around the coffee pot about this stuff? Um. Well, sometimes the topic comes up. I I just I think it's partly my personality. I feel like I like I have to be so certain about everything before I actually say it. <laughs> I, I just tend to avoid those conversations and, you know, and, and I shouldn't. Well, I there's some that. of these things you're never going to be certain about. Isn't that some of the basis of faith that there's got to right. be a little bit of doubt? I, I certainly remember that from, you know, Father Tobin before he gave me the back of his right hand and me sure. and my smart <laughs> mouth, uh, you know, 
So, yeah. <laughs> well, there's there's faith even in, with an atheist. You know, they 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 believe based you know certain things that they're not certain of too. But you're you're exactly right. Um, well, we listen, to... Dale. I have to tell you, uh, I, I I just have so much admiration for your um, your the work that you're doing, both as a scientist and as you do with your faith here. And and I I like having these kinds of shows because I do think it represents the the broad uh, nature of the people who work in and around the turf industry. It wasn't something our paths would have never crossed if if you weren't working in turf, and yet. I really think it's vital that we, we can have wide-ranging opinions on things, differences on things, and, and still maintain a, uh, a civil dialogue. I, I think that's right. the thing that's most critical and, and to me the most worrisome when our universities you know, ban certain speakers from coming simply because they right. don't agree with uh, what they're saying. I, 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 right. I think it was Voltaire. You know, I don't agree with it, but I'll fight to the death for your right to say it. And I, I right. still believe believe that is the foundation uh, of, of what we share more than what differ, that what differs about us. I'm sure they feel the same way. I do. I absolutely ag- agree with that and appreciate what you're doing too, Frank. Well, thanks very much, Dale. Professor Dale Bremer, Kansas State University, as we've determined the Little Apple, the other Manhattan in Manhattan, Kansas. I'm Frank Rossi. This has been Frankly Speaking. I'll be back in a moment with some final thoughts. Kansas State Professor Dale Bremer has contributed research in important emerging areas, greenhouse gases, water use, the perception of water use, remote sensing, and his faith-driven blog where he contributes positively to the conversation on some of society's most challenging issues. I'm grateful he does it. While our views differ, I appreciate and respect my colleague, especially for his own, frankly speaking. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Frankly Speaking. Hope you join us the next time.